You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. When its light has hit the ground There's lots of treasures to be found Underneath the lovely London sky Bucks and mares, cubs and does Welcome to our show of shows Tis my great honor to introduce Before They Were Live An ongoing monthly and extremely nerdy conversation Through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem of art and criticism and fandom, paying attention to the way these films shape our imaginations. Hopefully along the way, we enrich the viewing experience and perhaps we'll learn by the time we're done, some stuff and nonsense could be fun. Today, we're doing our seventh deuterocanonical episode. We do these whenever we hit the end of a decade and having hit the end of the teens, we decided to do 2018's Mary Poppins Returns. We discussed 1964's Mary Poppins back in Deuteronical, Deuterocanonical number three. I listened back to that one this week. I'd say it's one of our okayest episodes. Uh, joining me, as always, to share some wisdom is my favorite bibliophile, the one, the only, Michael Farmer. Good heavens, Josh. You seem hardly to have aged at all. <laughs> How rude, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> You never discuss a podcaster's age. I liked that. I liked better when he was like, how much do you weigh, Mary Poppins? <laughs> yes, that one I really liked, too. <laughs> how are you doing, Josh? Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed this uh, Enjoyed this jaunt back into uh, 17 Cherrydale Lane and um, uh, Edwardian England. Um, Although now it's, it's Depression-era England. Yes, I guess so. I don't know when. Uh, I don't know when the when the things change. You know, when the when the when the uh, king when the king dies. It's Edwardian England because K- King Edward is the king. Yes, but I don't. I'm, I'm sorry. I I should have just been more clear there. I don't know when Edward <laughs> Edward died. What year? I don't either died. actually. And um, I did, I don't know my royal uh, family well enough to to say what era we moved into after Edwardian. I, well, I don't think they call it after a king after Edwardian. So Ed, Ed, Edwardian England is like a fourteen year period uh, year period following the Victorian era, and then after okay. that, I think World War One is what disrupts it. And then I I think after that they just call it between the wars, or they call it World War Two era, or they call it the modern era, or whatever. You don't ever hear anybody refer to the Elizabethan era, meaning. Um, meaning Queen Elizabeth II, or I, I haven't heard anybody call this the Carolingian era. Right. Do you think that's because um, she ruled for so long and over such a diverse, like, I mean, a very, like a lot of things have happened, <laughs> you know? Or well, and also, like, I don't know when they started calling the Victorian era the Victorian era. They might not have called it that while she was still alive. Yeah, that's true. Because she ruled, did did Victoria rule for longer than Elizabeth II? It was it was close it, either way. It was close. I know that it was close. Yeah, that is about all I know of my uh, my royal history. Yeah, I, I I I teach some British history, but it ends in uh, 
1793. So I'm I'm out of my depth with 20th century British history. All right. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to start us there. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's all right. <laughs> but yes, Depression era England is still as charming as Edwardian England, it seems, at least in this movie. <laughs> at least in the way they tell it. I, if I had to pick a time to live, Depression era England probably would not be it. Will Cherry Tree Lane survive the Blitz? Yeah, <clears throat> it's a good question. Um, it's a it's a it's a beautiful movie. I mean the the aesthetics of it. Like, yes, and in, in the uh, if the if the three transcendental transcendentals are the good, the true, and the beautiful, this this one is the beautiful for sure. Yeah, the truth the truth uh, less less clear. Yeah, but I would I would say that about like the sets, uh, the costumes, <laughs> the people. You know, they're all. I mean, it's just it's, it's really lovely. I actually, um, Cherry Tree Lane, tra- Cherry Tree Lane looked so amazing. It really and did. I, I watched the behind the scenes stuff, and they built that entire thing inside a you know a giant soundstage. And like, what a, a labor of love, you know, is all I can say. Like, and that. they shot this in England, right? But they didn't shoot it out in the wild. It was all inside. I, I, it wasn't clear from the making of what was shot where or in where, you know, and where exactly the sets were and stuff. I, I, they didn't go, they didn't get into all that, but yeah, they just, they did, they did show the, you know, the construction of, of cherry tree lane. And it was, it's just, it's amazing. I mean, I'm a sucker for that stuff. The, like the big practical sets. One of the reasons I love Hitchcock's, uh, um, rear window Mm -hmm. is because they built that entire enormous, Greenwich Village set in a soundstage. Right. Yes. And I, I just think that's the coolest thing. Um, and especially in this era when they probably could have CGI'd it, as they do CGI some things in this movie, obviously. A lot of things, yeah. <laughs> um, things. The, the fact that they, they built an actual set instead of just green screening it, I find very impressive. Mm-hmm. Me too. I just, yeah. I, I'm with you. I am also a sucker for that stuff. I actually, you know, in, in my, my current iteration of, uh, as a carpenter, I often think like, well, how do you get into building that? Because <laughs> that would be a lot of fun, you know? That would be cool. So You could move down to Atlanta, I'm sure, you know, with the film industry uh, here. Although I'm, I am I really don't even know how many practical sets like the Marvel movies use. They, I think I think they use mostly um, mostly green screen and CGI. Yeah, I think it's it's probably few and far between who are using the, the practical sets. I know that um, another movie that I enjoyed and uh, – somewhat related to this one just in the in this like kind of reboot slash sequel era the ghostbusters afterlife that the uh did you watch that one i haven't you told me to watch it and i still haven't seen it. oh that's okay you, uh, you don't have to listen to my recommendations but the house in there is is uh also all practical they built this you know decrepit old house which i just think is so cool that they like it's you know it's brand new but they built it to look that old like it's just it's cool <clears throat> yeah anyway Anyway, if, if anyone anyone listening, if you're if you're uh, hiring carpenters to do that kind of work, I'm get get in touch, please. Before they, well, they were, they were live at gmail.com. <laughs> they did a good job matching the old set too. I thought. Now I didn't go back and look at the other one in in front of this one, but they they, they did a kind of Back to the Future job on it in the sense that they it seems to me that they took that old set and copied it and then kind of made it run down mm-hmm. um, to demonstrate that. You know, everybody's fallen on hard times. The yeah. sun scarcely shines in this movie before the before the final sequence. That's right. Yeah. But but they so they do a good job taking this place that had been very bright and beautiful and making it kind of gloomy mm-hmm. because that's how everybody felt in the movie. Yeah. The cherry blossoms forgot to bloom. 
until the right. very end. Until the very end. And then they're bloomed everywhere. And each one apparently put placed by hand. So is it true? <laughs> yeah, that's a, I mean, according to uh, um, according to the the behind the scenes thing. I guess what's the other option? You you time it perfectly so that your actual cherry blossom <laughs> tree yeah. blooms. So yeah, yeah, probably was placed by hand. Man. Yep. So that's cool. And I mean, and then while you're talking about it, the um the hand animated scene also feels old timey in exactly that way. That it's not the the scene with the the music hall that they go to on the on the dish is is you know animated very much the way the animated sequences would have been done in the early 60s as well. It, in fact, I think they couldn't find anybody at Disney to do it, so they had to they had to farm it out to another company. They did, yes. They farmed it out to uh, an animation company called Duncan Animation, and Ken Duncan founded that studio in 2007. He he did work as a Disney animator, starting with uh, you know Rescuers Down Under. I think he was like an in betweener or something way back then. But then he worked up through uh, Treasure Planet, and he worked on some big ones. You know, he worked on um, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin, Lion King, <clears throat> Hercules, Tarzan, all that stuff. So like, I mean, definitely you know has the had the old knowledge of Disney, but yeah, they couldn't. They couldn't pass over to the Disney Animation Studio as, you know, the 1960s one did, which is, you know, it's it's kind of sad. But a lot of the, you know, the human beings involved, um, <clears throat> obviously, Ken Duncan didn't animate the entire thing himself. So a lot of the people he hired were, were also, you know, um, worked on had worked on either had worked on hand drawn animation or, you know, came over and, and were excited to do it from you know, Pixar or from DreamWorks or wherever, you know, so. It's, I mean, it's good. It, it, it is sad that Disney did not have in-house people who knew how to do 2D animation anymore, but it's good that they did, they farmed it out instead of doing it 3D. Can you imagine how annoying that would have been? Yeah, it would have been, it would have, <clears throat> honestly, that's my, my favorite sequence of the movie. So, or maybe my second favorite. So without that sequence uh, being good, I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, yeah, I'd have a very different feel on the movie. But, um, yeah, I, 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 that animation sequence is just, I, I think it's completely wonderful. Like, I, I, I was really enamored by the the way they did it, the uh, the characters. Um, they had kind of a, um, I felt like they really uh, leaned into, like, Alice in Wonderland. Also um, Mr. Toad, the Mr. Toad sequence. Yeah, the Mr. Toad sequence. Um, I got kind of a bed, bed knobs and broomsticks vibe from Absolutely, some a movie we haven't talked about, but th this, you know, is is a kind of unofficial sequel to Mary Poppins already. Right, so there's all those, you know, which are all of the right era, right? Like, that's all, you know, the 50s and uh, 60s time period, so totally. The Flamingos um, looked very much like... Uh, the flamingos in in Fantasia 2000. Um, so much so that I thought maybe uh, uh, what's his name Gold Goldberg I think that we've talked about on here several times. Uh, he's the one who did that sequence in Fantasia 2000. I thought he may have been involved, but he 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 wasn't. So at least not credited. You know? Right, which I assume means he wasn't involved. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, that I, I agree that that was a really well done sequence that that felt. There's no way we're we're going to be able to get around the fact that this movie is beat for beat the first movie. I mean, more or less. Um, but it it's not that that part at least was not just a copy. It didn't feel um, it didn't feel like they were just redoing the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious scene mm -hmm. from um, from the first movie. Yeah, 
It did. You're you're right that it's beat for beat. It's an interesting beat for beat. Um, like I would say, it's a different uh, beat for beat than um, you know, like uh, what was the first Star Wars one, The Force Awakens that came oh, out. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like that one was really like. I mean, it was like the same, um, like almost the same storyline, even you know. Um, this one, or, this uh, Home Alone Two: Lost in New York, is the kind of <laughs> yes, yeah, standard know, that's, for that's a, a sequel that is exactly the same as the yes, first one. Yes, yes, um, <clears throat> starring Donald Trump. Um, that's right. But uh, the the thing I think that's different about this movie is that, like, tonally, they're all the same, and kind of maybe emotionally, they're like the same. But the story itself is very different. I feel like yes. I think that's true. The sequences are are beat for beat the same, but it is telling a very different story. Yeah, which I think is really you know interesting and a and a I guess a good way to go about it. You know, like I really I it's hard to judge a movie like this because it's it's uh, you know you can't help but have the the first one, which is so beloved, as the background that you're judging it against. You know, like it's it's impossible to judge it on its own merits, you know? Um, but I think for the, for the part that I can, I would say, you know, like taking that route or that route with it, um, it's obviously a labor of love, um, you know? So, so yes, the fact that, you know, it is beat for beat, if that feels more like a love letter or a, or an homage, you know, then, then maybe it would if the story was also exactly the same and then it would feel more like, um, I don't know, a cash grab. <laughs> right, right. It doesn't feel cynical the way The Force Awakens felt cynical. Yeah. And I actually did come away liking The Force Awakens. But and I don't want to get into a whole Star Wars podcast here, but like um, you know, I, I obviously I'm, you know, that movie was made for me in a lot of ways, you know. So, um but um what was I trying to say about that? Oh, the the thing that I came away with from that movie and this movie both that I, like in a positive way is I just feel like they nailed the the feel of it, you know, like you just felt like you were back in the original Mary Poppins movie. And in The Force Awakens, you just felt like you were back in the Star Wars universe, you know. Right. <clears throat> Whatever other merits or non-merit, demerits <laughs> those movies may have. <laughs> and, and this movie had lots of like little references to the first one. Um, the, the music a lot of times would play uh light motifs from the first one spoonful of sugar came up a lot mm-hmm. uh, but uh is it fiduciary whatever bank i can't remember the name of the, the song from the first one it played whenever they went to the bank and um there were there were a couple of other music cues that were just kind of background they weren't part of the songs but they were there um you you have cameo appearances from the two original children as adults no not from the two original children from uh <laughs> Uh, the the original uh, Jane yeah have, um uh, uh, that's her her name is uh, Karen Karen Dotris um and she shows up on the street and asks for directions right right she has a speaking role my wife pointed to an older man and said that that was original Michael oh really I, no I Michael actually he well tra- as he died in 1977 I yeah, suppose he, it's not him. yeah he he tragically died and like he was only 21 I think I sure hope died. it wasn't him in that case <laughs> well that would be kind of uh kind of cool the ghost of michael haunted the set so and then then you also have uh angela lansbury who i my understanding is standing in for julie andrews they asked julie andrews to have a a cameo role in the movie Mm -hmm. and she didn't want to take 
um, attention away from Emily Blunt, which I thought was a very classy, uh, a very classy thing to do. But I, my my guess is that the Angela Lansbury character at the end with the balloons would have been um, would have been uh, Julie Andrews. Yeah. And then you have uh, Dick Van Dyke reprising yes. his role. Yeah, yeah. Which, that's when I said earlier, it's my second favorite sequence. My first favorite sequence is the Dick Van Dyke sequence. So I, I totally get Julie Andrews like sort of like, well, I don't want to overshadow the movie because I feel like had she shown up and been in that balloon sequence, the balloon sequence is lo- lovely anyway, but right. it would have maybe been the best sequence in the movie if Julie Andrews had been in it um, just because it would have been full on nostalgia at that point. Right. Um, which, I, I don't know that she can still sing, though, is the only thing. So I'm not sure. I'm 100% sure that that's the part she would have had. Right. Because I, I, she had some sort of vocal polyp, right, where she can't, she can't sing anymore. Yes. And terrible. when people say that, yeah, I know it's terrible because her, her voice was what a gift, you know, what, a, what an amazing gift. Um, but then when, so, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know anything. Um, when When she says she can't sing does it mean she can't sing the way that she could and so she doesn't want to because she doesn't want to diminish it like could could she sing as well as angela lansbury song you know right like right. i don't know but i mean it's yeah it's neither here nor there she wasn't in it so uh, and apparently it was not through any ill will it was as you said it was because she was trying not to overshadow anything and she was trying to pass the torch gracefully and yeah super super classy move in my opinion yeah i i could i i think i could have taken it either way like I'm, yeah I agree it's a classy move, but I, I think it would have been lovely to have her in it. So whatever. I'm glad they got the the two that they did. Yeah, yeah. And Angela Lansbury was also very, very fun to see, especially for people who know Bedknobs with Broomsticks. Right. Which is, you know, obviously a much lesser movie than Mary Poppins, but mm-hmm. still exists in that universe. Right. And the the um the can you imagine that sequence here has I think a lot in common with Bedknobs and Broomsticks in particular. Yeah. Yeah, I got that kind of feel too. Although I haven't seen Bedknobs and Broomsticks probably since you know I was ten or eleven, so um, I can't. I, but you know, it's funny how it's like if Mary things... Poppins had Nazis in it. <laughs> I have, it's been probably ten years since I saw it, um, but like it, it is unexpectedly full of Nazis. Yeah, many of the great movies are. <laughs> so. So yes, anyway, I, I don't know. I feel like I distracted you from a point you were making there. Uh, I don't um, remember what it was. Okay, well, anyway, we started somewhere and we ended somewhere. Um, but yeah. Do you want I'm, to talk about Emily Blunt as Mary Poppins? I feel like I feel like we've been um, putting that off for whatever reason. I think you told me that in the other episode, I said that I wouldn't say anything bad about Emily Blunt. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly what you said. Yeah. What I mean is, I find her very attractive. <laughs> she's good in this, though. I, you know, she doesn't play the part exactly the way Julie Andrews played it. She's she's a much more sour Mary Poppins, mm-hmm. um, which I think is more true to the books, which I have not read, but that's my understanding. But mm-hmm. I I really liked her performance, and I think if she'd just come in and done a Julie Andrews impression, it wouldn't have worked very well. Um, so it was better that she made the part her own and, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, obviously still very lovable, but she's, she's a little bit scarier as Mary Poppins than Julie Andrews was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and we talked about in the, you know, Mary Poppins is a, a very enigmatic sort of character. Um, anyway, you know, like she's, she's hard to get a read on even in the first one, um, because she can be, you know, a little harsh at times or cold standoffish, you know, um, but then um, she's also got this, 
you know, very fun and, and willing to willing to do crazy things side, you know. Um, so she's she's an interesting character. I feel like it would be a, a difficult character to play. And yes, I do feel like Emily Blunt uh, did a good job. I mean, she doesn't sing as well as Julie Andrews, but that's uh, that's not really a fair comparison, is it? No. Nobody, nobody <laughs> sings as well as Julie Andrews. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that is a little uh, too high a bar uh, to jump, I would say. But yeah, let's. Uh, so <clears throat> I read a quote uh, this week. Uh, this is, you know, sticking to Mary, Mary Poppins. This is more as a character than anything on Emily in particular. Did you have more to say about Emily in particular? No, I don't think so. Um, so, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, um, <laughs> I know this is a little like, it, it wouldn't be an episode of Before They Were Live if we didn't do something like this, but, um, anyway, uh, he, he writes, um, <clears throat> there is nothing that requires such a gentle handling as an illusion if one wishes to dispel it. If anyone prompts the prospective captive to set his will in opposition, all is lost. And this is what a direct attack achieves and implies moreover the presumption of requiring a man to make to another person or in his presence an admission which he can make most profitably to himself privately this is what is achieved by the indirect method which loving and serving the truth arranges everything dialectically for the prospective captive and then shyly withdraws for love is always shy so as not to witness the admission which he makes to himself alone before god that he has lived hitherto in an illusion. And when I read that, I was like, oh, that's that's Mary Poppins. Like she right. she gently handles people who are living in an illusion because she wishes to dispel their illusion, but she never um uses the direct method and forces them to come to terms with the illusion they're living in themselves. This is her always like bringing them to the point and then withdrawing, you know, <laughs> like and that's where she like, you know, always shushes the kids and says, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, because she's trying to bring Michael to this point. And uh, if she, if she's too direct about it, then he, he'll, you know, he, he'll have to, you know, admit in front of everyone that he's been living an illusion, um, which he does eventually anyway, but you know what I mean? Like, right, right, right. But, but he, she, he, she does that ironically, with that, and that's the that's that's the term that Kierkegaard uses for the indirect method, right? He's talking about Socratic irony. Uh huh. I think so. I don't. So, I don't have the full context of the quote. I mean, that's her coldness, right? She she doesn't say everything she means, and a lot of the things she says, she doesn't mean at all, right? Like if somebody says, "Well, that's impossible," she says, "Oh, of course it's impossible." Mm-hmm. She doesn't try to argue with them. She doesn't. And this is this is where it this is where the differences between the two movies um, come in. It would be perfectly reasonable for her to turn to Jane and Michael and say, uh, you know, we used to do all sorts of crazy things together. Remember, we once jumped into a chalk painting on the sidewalk and and went into a magical world where a bunch of penguins knew who I was. Like She would be well within her rights to say, hey, don't you remember that? And she doesn't. She just writes it off. And and she, she treats them more or less just like she treated their parents in 1910. You know, mm-hmm. just, uh, yeah, okay. So you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. And eventually, hopefully, you'll come to your senses about what is what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very, it's, I, I, it's a very interesting approach. But um, once I read the the Kierkegaard, but, you know, fortunately that, you know, I came across that this week. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> now I understand Mary Poppins. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> 
My kids didn't get it. They they don't they don't care for Mary Poppins as a character be, precisely because of this. They're like, why doesn't she tell them? Or why does she, you know, why why is she lying all the time? Why you know why why does she say she doesn't know what they're talking about when she does know what she's talking what they're talking about? So they don't like it. She doesn't allow you to get close to her. Right. Right. Like and and I, I don't know. You're you're. You're accustomed to thinking of taking care of children as being about winning their trust and their love or whatever. And she seems to not care about that at all. Mm-hmm. And so she she feels kind of dangerous because of it. Right. Because she's not warm. No, she's definitely not warm. I do think, though, and we talked about this uh, at the very end of the or I'm sorry, at the end of the last movie, uh, the, the original movie, um, Mary Poppins has that conversation with her uh, her umbrella about, you know, the children love their father more than you. And she's like, well, that's as it should be. And I feel like there's a little bit of that. Like she's purposely putting up walls between her and the kids because she's not their mother and she's not their father. You know, she's going to be in their lives for, you know, a week or a month or however long it is, you know, that this, you know, I'm, well, this particular story takes place in a week. I don't remember what the first one was. Um, and then she's going to move on to another family, presumably, you know, yeah. So yeah. But I feel like it's hard on her. Like I feel like you see like it's a it's actually a this I going back to Emily Blunt's performance um and I feel like you see it a little bit in Julie Andrews's Mary Poppins as well but like you can see the pain that doing this it causes her but it's like a self-sacrificial sort of sort of thing, you know, like to stay distant. I, feel like. I, I I don't know that I see the pain in her. She she seems to be so successful at her ironic distance that the the viewer doesn't really get let in either. When she's leaning against the door in the nursery and listening to the kids discuss like what happened, you don't you don't feel like she's that's true. And and when that that scene, I turned to Victoria and I said, I don't know that I feel like Mary Poppins would do that. That she would care to hear what they're saying about her. Hmm. Yeah. And then even, I don't know, I felt like even, you know, she's looking in the balloon, you know, kind of vainly as she always looks into any reflective surface. But then there's also a little bit of like, okay, it's time to go, you know, and like she doesn't say goodbye or anything, you know, like I, I and, and maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I was just reading the wrong thing into it. But I felt like in that moment also, like you can see a little bit in Emily's face um, that this is painful to have to leave like this, but she knows that that's what she has to do. Maybe I was reading too much. No, it. no. I mean, I, I, th- I think, I think you, 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 you may. I need to maybe go back and look at it. I think I might have gone in, assuming I knew what she was doing without um, paying close enough attention. Or maybe it's just really ambiguous the way Mary Poppins is. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah, it's it, it's clear that that coldness is part of her effectiveness. And I would like to read the books because my understanding is the books are that even more so. That the books just really have no human warmth in them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that as well, but I've also not read them. Another thing that Mary Poppins kind of reminded me of this time. This was this was again. This was due to my kids watching it with my kids. But um, my daughter, my oldest daughter, said she's such a meddler, <laughs> you know, um, because I mean, she really. I feel like in this one. Um, you know, she's really putting things in motion in a way, um, especially on my second watch through, I was, I was noticing things, um, that she was kind of, you know, purposely like when Michael 
forgets his briefcase. Like she actually grabbed the briefcase out of his hand before she shoved him out the door, you know? Um, uh, so um, there's some real meddling and it kind of reminded me of like a Merlin type figure, you know, like she's, she's kind of omnipotent, not omnipotent, um, omniscient in a way, you know, like she kind of knows beforehand what's going to happen or seems to, um, you know, or knows the right places to be at the right time, um, type thing, you know, kind of like a person living backwards in time. And then, uh, you know, especially the, uh, the sword and the stone <laughs> Merlin at least is always like meddling in things, you know, to try and, you know, move things in, in the direction that he wants them. Do you think she knew that the, um, the bank shares were in that kite? Well, she, oh, okay. So this is the other one that I caught on the second walkthrough or the second watch through is um, she puts the papers in the bin um, and she's like, so she floats them all in there. She floats the picture of the family as the last one. So it's on top of the bin. And then she gives the bin to Georgie to go dispose of. So she just she knows what what's going to happen and she allows it. She kind of sets it up so that it'll happen the way she wants it to happen. Instead I, I, of just going and saying, oh, Michael, look, I have found the uh, <laughs> I have yeah. found the bank share you're looking yeah, for. They're right here. Because I guess that wouldn't force. Michael to go through the whole process he needs to go through, I guess. Right. I don't know. It is very manipulative in a, in a way. <laughs> well, and then the, the fact that the bank share doesn't matter anyway, that that's not the, um, that, that doesn't actually end up stopping um, getting their house back. Right. So it, it ends up being a non-issue anyway. Maybe she knew that too. It's so hard to tell what she is and what she knows. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really the point of the movie, but it is, it's interesting that they, they sh- I mean, they shot all that stuff, you know, like, so I don't know. Well, I don't know what the intention is. And maybe again, like maybe the stuff comes clear through clearer in the books, you know, or maybe it's just meant to be a mystery. I don't know. It's very interesting. I can't imagine that it um, is clearer in the books. I, I can't imagine that the books explain anything meaningful about Mary Poppins like the the power of these movies is that we don't know what she is we don't know where she's coming from who's sending her why she has to leave why what's her connection with this family are there other families she's similarly connected to mm-hmm. how does everybody in the universe seem to know her <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't you know her if you saw her Michael <laughs> well, I suppose I would maybe the movies the mary poppins movies exist in universe and that's where people know her from (laughs) yeah i don't know yeah no i mean those are great questions and i think you're right it is part of the power of these movies is is that but i don't think it's the only power of the movies because i think there's something also like um i don't know i don't know the right word for it you know there's a real I don't know. It's I, I want to say sentimental, but that seems like the wrong word. You know, there's just something about these, you know, movies that are I mean, maybe maybe it is what you said, like we don't know Mary Poppins role and it's just the mystery of all that. But there, there's also just a I don't know, a, a, a warmth that's not in her, but it's in the movie, you know. Does yeah. That make any sense? No, I think that's right. I think the movie is warm, even though she's not. I think that's right. Yeah. So, 
But I do think it is a, a powerful storytelling device. I actually, I used to talk about this with my wife with uh, the um, the Harry Potter novels because, you know, there, there are so many annoying plot holes and discrepancies and things in Harry Potter. But, like, I wonder if that made me enjoy the books more because it, like, rattles around in your head. It's like an earworm, you know, like like, a, like when a song is, like, super catchy. It's like you can't stop thinking about, like, well, what would have happened if Harry had just said da-da-da-da, you know, or had just done da-da-da-da, you know? And, like, it, it's like, is that is that, like, uh, a mistake or is there, like, a craftsmanship to that, like, to create something that's, like, so like so close to like, like it's practically perfect you know it's like practically perfect but there's like that one like weird little like niggling thing that like drives you crazy like i've kind of feel like that about mary poppins as a character like like she she is practically perfect but like all those like little details like it's like well wait a second you know why why couldn't she just say well here's the bank shares right here you know Besides the fact that you really wouldn't have much of a movie if you did that. That's right. Yeah. So uh, that's what I mean is that, that like the craftsmanship of really good, really good storytelling is finding a way to like make that, um, you know, make that aspect of, well, that would solve everything <laughs> to actually feel uh, to feel right within the universe somehow. You know? Well, and I, I also just think in a fairy tale, you don't want to explain everything. It's it's what makes the Star Wars prequels so annoying, right? That the midichlorians are, are reduced to like a scientific test. Mm-hmm. As a you know, when the when the rules of the universe exist and are purposely not explained to you, it just makes them much more powerful. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. So, what else do we want to say about this movie? <laughs> well, I assume you want to talk about Lin Manuel Miranda, who has uh, as big a part in this movie as Dick Van Dyke did in the first one. Mm-hmm. Sure, let's talk about him and his role as Jack. An interesting name. So, uh, I, again, I don't want to keep re- just rehashing what we did in the past. But uh, in the last movie, we made a big deal about how Bert is a real jack of all trades. And then oh. in this movie, we have a character named Jack, uh, who is less less a jack of all trades um, than Bert was. Certainly, you know, we we see him as a as a lamplighter or a leery, as he calls himself um, through the whole movie. But um, yeah, I mean. What can you say about Lin Manuel? He's he's completely charming. He does not overdo the accent like Dick Van Dyke did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he, the accent was a little weird, uh, but you know it's fine. I probably wouldn't notice it at all if I didn't already know Lin Manuel Miranda. You know what I mean? Um, I'm bad with accents. I, I, I you, you could have told me he was a uh, he was a native-born Englishman, and I, I definitely would have believed you. But that doesn't yeah. mean anything because I can't tell one from another really. Yeah, I think mostly it came up with in in his he's got a very distinct singing voice, I feel like. And I feel like his singing when he was singing, there was something about the tenor or whatever of his voice that is like still distinguishable, even though he's doing the accent. And so that's what I mean by it was a little weird. Like it was like he's singing the words in the accent, but it still sounds like Lin-Manuel Miranda because of, you know, he just has this sort of like uh, distinct distinction to, you know, to his vocal style. Right. Well, he has also a limited range, I think. Um, and and so everything, everything he sings ends up sounding like him, which is not not really a, a criticism. Mm-hmm. It, it sounded like a criticism. Yeah. But yeah, I really, I liked him. I liked his role um, in the movie. Um, 
He and you Jane know. are going to be a couple now. Yeah, he and Jane are going to be a couple, which is great. Uh, for Mary Poppins 3, you know. 30 years from now, <laughs> 50 years from now. Yeah. No, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, it's hard to say, like, when Disney, especially in this era, reboots something like this. I mean, because I, I don't know if reboot is the right word, but, like, you know, what's their what's their game? You know, are they are they setting this up for, you know, more Mary Poppins adventures or not? You know, it's hard to say. Right. Um, Hopefully not. <clears throat> I mean, the I know the books. There's a whole series of them, so I don't know. But um, yeah. What else to say about Lin Manuel Miranda? He's he's just a, a, a incredibly charming person. <laughs> Yeah, which is which is pretty much all he needs to be here, I think. I'm trying to think about how his role compares to the Dick Van Dyke part in the first one. And it, it does feel like he's less important to the movie than Bert was. Yeah, Bert um Bert has a really well the movie's so the movie's structured differently. The first one, you know, they, they break the fourth wall and Bert invites you into the story right from the beginning and he's narrating it for you. Um which Jack never does here. And then um, Bert knows Mary, but we don't know how. Like, he adds to that mystery of, like, who is this Mary person? Where does she come from? And what's she here for? Um, whereas Jack tells us straight out when he first met Mary and when he first met, you know, like, uh, Bert and all that sort of stuff, you know? Right. Um, <clears throat> so it's different in that way. Um, and then Bert, I think... Uh, has a very key conversation with uh, Mr. Banks that there's nothing like that for Jack to do in this movie. I mean, I guess the um, the parallel is the conversations he has with Jane. Is it? I mean, what does what conversations does he have with Jane? That's true. And even that seems much more like um, Mary Poppins kind of arranging things without people realizing it. Yeah, she says she'll you'll bump into her, and then he literally bumps into her. So. <laughs> Again, that's the kind of the like omniscient Mary Poppins thing. I don't know. Yeah, I yeah, I felt like I liked. Uh, well, I know it's not like or dislike. That's not fair. It's just uh, I, I, the structure of the first one. The structure of the first story was different. This one. So Bert's 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 role had more to do than Jack's does. So you're right. There's not much for him to do except for be around and be charming. Sing some songs. Which I'm sure we'll talk about eventually. Yeah, we should get around to the songs. I think we should move to that. Okay. Uh, I mean, how do you... How do you follow up one of the most universally beloved sets of songs ever written? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's a that's a tough order. A very tough order. Very, very tough order. The uh, guy who did it is the guy who did the um, music for the um, musical Hairspray, which mm-hmm. um, is a good musical, and that's a it's a good uh, it's it's a good soundtrack, and 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 I think he does a, a pretty good job here too. It, it's not as good as the first one, but also I've had fifty fewer years to listen to this one. So maybe if I had grown up with it, I would love these songs as much as I love the other ones. Right. So I'll say <clears throat> on that note, <laughs> the first day, the, I watched it in the evening, went to bed, woke up the next morning with 
spoonful of sugar in my head, which I assume is from all the uh, leitmotif callbacks, like you mentioned, <laughs> you know, and I could not recall a single melody of any of the songs. And so then I was like, well, I'm going to listen to it apart from the movie, you know, like just to give it a fair shake because it's not really a fair shake, you know. And I listened to it apart from the movie and I was like, oh, yeah, these songs aren't bad. And then I rewatched the movie again with my kids that evening. And then today, I think I can hum all the songs, you know, like so three lessons. I think I can hum them all. Um, so whether they will hold up in for 50 years or 60 years or whatever, you know, whether they'll be, you know, um, the the environment that they're released into is such a different environment than <laughs> the first yes. ones were released into, you know, I don't know any, I mean, I think it just, it's such a, a, a higher bar to jump for anything to, to, you know, um, to be able to have the stain and massive impact that a song released in the sixties has, you know? Um, so, uh, but yeah, they, they, I think they're, they're, it's, it's a, it's a good set of songs. You know? Yeah, and certainly like during the movie while they're on, there's only one of them I didn't particularly care for. And even that wasn't because it wasn't a good song. We'll talk about it in just a minute, I'm sure. Okay. Should we just go through an order? Yeah. So it opens with um The Lovely London Sky, which is the the kind of corresponding song to the life I lead from the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um I think Lovely London Sky is actually a better song than Life I Lead. I think it's very well done and the, the whole sequence is lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and this is this is the the first you know Lin Manuel Miranda song, and uh, he's yeah it, as we just kind of stated you know this is this is his kind of you know bringing us into the world. Um, so we should yeah. we should point out he had nothing as far as I know to do with the writing of any of those songs. Correct. Yeah, I mean that's um, as far as I can tell too. Probably. I mean this was the first thing he did after he left. Uh, Hamilton. I'm sure he was glad to be able to do something that he was not responsible for the the production of mm-hmm. uh, this, this kind of gave him room to breathe, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The, uh, and I will say about this song and about, you know, just to get this out of the way, like, I feel like um, the, the way that they, I don't know if this was on purpose or it's just the way it worked out or what. I feel like every song in this movie is sung in this kind of like soft tone yes like meant to like evoke sentimentality or something you know even the upbeat songs i feel like are like just the way they're mixed or something like where the vocal track is in the score i don't know but there's something about it where like it's never it's it never reaches the levels of like the life i lead (laughs) or um holly jolly holly you know uh jolly holiday with mary or any of those like even when they're like you know like a bigger song like uh you know the everything must go up or whatever you know um uh no or sorry nowhere to go but up like it just it's always in this kind of like soft uh style uh with, with the exception of a cover is not the book with it yeah with the exception of that that's true. and also to some extent turning turtle yes yeah yeah you're right okay so i shouldn't say every song but, but yeah there, a, it, is a, a it is a lower song. key soundtrack than the first yes. one yeah so, um, but yeah, I don't have anything else to say about Lovely London Sky. So then you have a conversation, which is Ben Wishaw singing. It's it's hardly a song. It's it's kind of dialogue with a with a vague melody to it. But he's singing yeah. to his dead wife, and it's very moving. 
um, we, we haven't really talked about this, that the what you have instead of the elder Mr. Banks neglecting his children so he can throw himself into his life at the bank is um, the younger Mr. Banks, Michael Banks, neglecting his children because he's so deep in grief over the death of his wife, who, in addition to being his wife, was apparently much more practical than he was and took care mm-hmm. of all the finances and everything else that he's just not capable of taking care of because in some ways he's still a child because he's an artist. Yeah. And so a conversation is him up in the attic singing to her, asking her where she went. And this will pay off later with the, um, the kind of big emotional song later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very emotional song straight off the bat. <laughs> I was already like feeling very weepy at this point. And it, this is, I don't know, there's something about this movie <laughs> that I didn't appreciate that, you know? I was like, why are you doing this to me right now? Like, I'm not actually attached to, like, you or your, you know, like, I mean, the idea of a young, you know, a young young kids and a young man being left with, you know, like, without uh, the wife is, is you know, that's a sad story by itself. I mean, it felt a little emotionally manipulative to me, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, I tried not to hold that against the movie, <laughs> but I couldn't help it anyway to still, like, just be like, you know, um, my eyes getting all watery because again, it's that like super soft, like, and like you said, like it's barely a melody and there's just something about that. Just like, I I talked about this during Moana too, you know, when the grandmother sings, like, it just makes me cry. Like, just like the, 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 the way the voice is, you know, like you feel manipulated. Yeah. But it still works. (laughs) You know, I feel manipulated, but it still works. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what that says about me as a person. Then you get um, my favorite song in the movie, uh, Can You Imagine That, which is this, the sequence, the spoonful the <coughs> of sugar sequence, essentially, where they, where they slide down into the bathtub and go uh, on their undersea adventure, the bed knobs and broomsticks undersea adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and again, it's no spoonful of sugar, but I found this to be the catchiest, um, the catchiest song in the movie. Yeah, it is catchy and uh, it's fun. It's a, it, you know, it's finally we get some, I mean, man, it was, it's, it's, uh, I know we're only two songs in, but by this point in the movie, I was, I was ready for uh, something a little more lighthearted, especially with such a, uh, um, the, the introduction to Mary Poppins is so dramatic. And like, I mean, with the wind blowing and the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the music and the kids chasing their brother and the kite almost, you know, picking him up off the ground. Like it's a real action sequence in a way that, um, you know, all the nannies being swept away <laughs> is not an action sequence. You know what I mean? And in, in the first one, right. It feels, um, it feels dangerous. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And there, as I would say that about this movie in general is it's, it's much more like action packed, uh, than, than the first one. And, uh, so yeah, I, I was ready for a little like um, just sailing in a in a bathtub at this point. It's good. <laughs> I needed a bath. <laughs> well, and that and that sequence really is all CGI, and it didn't bother me at all. I thought it was really um, a really delightful sequence. Well done, and the song matches it very well. Mm-hmm. Then you get the uh, the Royal Dalton Music Hall, which is the song they sing when they go into the um, into the dish. The song they sing on the way to the music hall. Is that right? Yep. That's right. You've got it. So this is the kind of Jolly Holiday song, I guess, if you're, if you're making the comparison. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, go ahead. 
Oh, I was going to say these two, the the Royal Dalton and the covers, not the book, are definitely the Jolly Holiday and the Supercalifragilistic of the movie. But they're kind of flip flopped in a in a in a weird way, or I don't know if that flip flopped is the right word. The Royal Dalton Music Hall definitely has all the like tongue twisty words in it. Right, but you also know? a cover not, is not the book has essentially a rap sequence. Yes. Starring yeah, Lin-Manuel so, and Mel Miranda, so they're both kind of super expialidocious. Yeah, a little. Bit, I can't yeah. save when I'm not singing. Right, and uh, but then a cover is not the book has the the big uh, the half you know March style part in it too, um, which is more like Holly Jolly or Jolly Holly. I can't even say you can't say super califragilistic, and I can't say uh, <laughs> Jolly, Jolly Holiday. Jolly Holiday. <laughs> so anyway, it, it you know so yeah they're but anyway, this is my favorite outside of the Dick Van Dyke cameo. This is my favorite sequence in the movie. I, I absolutely, I, you, I, I enjoy so it. I, I like the stuff where they're driving to the music hall and I like the stuff where they're escaping from the music hall, but the song, a cover is not the book. I really do not like, I, I, I think it's inappropriately bawdy. And, and in some ways it's, it's appropriately bawdy because it's a music hall song. And it, I think it's a fairly typical music hall song. Right. Um, but it just it feels so out of place for them to be singing this song about this woman who gets pregnant. Does she get? Pre- oh, I'm a I, tree giving out oh, all yes, the seedlings. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Okay. And like I said, like if you that's went right. to an actual music hall and heard it, you wouldn't think, oh, that's not appropriate for children. But it feels it feels out of place for Mary Poppins to be singing this PG thirteen right. song in a Cockney accent. Yeah. So it's not that I don't like the song. I it just it doesn't feel right for the movie to me. I I think that's that's an extremely fair criticism. I I'll take it. I still, I, the, the the actual sequence is wonderful with the the, the again the, the kind of mu- musical backgrounds that are mm-hmm. they're constantly changing and I, I I appreciated that. I just it doesn't feel right um for this universe yeah um i was i was i was surprised they maybe i shouldn't be surprised they did it It, it's not people who haven't seen the movie are going to think that it's some sort of horribly offensive song and it's not that let me find the lyrics (laughs) nelly rubino was made of wood but what could not be seen was though her was though her trunk up top was barren while her Roots were lush and green. So in spring, when Mr. Hickory saw her blossoms blooming there, he took root despite her bark, and now there's seedlings everywhere. You, you know, like, that, I, I don't know. That that would not have been in the first movie. Yeah, it's true. Well, and the next verse, too, where... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, where Lady Hyacinth Macaw is wearing only a smile plus two feathers and a leaf. Yeah, yeah, that one. <laughs> it, it just, it, I, I don't know. I, I feel like such a prude. <laughs> yeah, you this is usually my role in, in the podcast. So. Right. I'm the one I'm the one on before they were live who who uh loves uh who framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. I think I, I I really I take your point. I think I was I the the lyrics and the song itself almost was almost like just secondary to me. Like I just really like the sequence. Like I like yes. the dancing. I like the the costume changes. The uh, um, you know I, I felt like uh, you're right. Even even the you know updated Mary Poppins. It does feel a little weird to have you know Lin Manuel rapping in it. Also like it's I mean it's not a full on rap, but it's it's close. You know it's the sort of rap uh, you would probably hear in a music hall song. Uh, the, 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 yeah. the kind of uh, what's it called in in Broadway? Patter song. 
Yeah, yeah, something like that, you know. So, I mean, yeah, I guess there's that, you know. I mean, there's, you know, there are people in the world who who think that, like, the music man invented rap and stuff. So, um, uh, so yeah, maybe maybe that fits perfectly. But anyway, um, but it's just, it's fun, you know. Like, the penguins are throwing the books, and he's, like, stepping up the books, and, like, it's, like, leading out into nowhere. I was like, how do they even do that? That's really cool, you know. <laughs> like, I don't right, know. I right. Really, like, I just, and it's nice I really to see the penguins it. come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're iconic. So, yeah. So maybe I'm being maybe I'm being too hard on a cover is not the book. Like if I had to pick a song I didn't like, uh, that's the one I didn't like. Okay. I think that's fair enough. Even though, as you say, the whole sequence is great, and the escape sequence is is really amazing when they're when they're running away from the wolf, who I'm dumb enough to have not picked up was played by Colin Firth. (laughs) It had to be pointed out to me. <laughs> and also, I didn't. Well, I, this had to be pointed out to me. The his the the weasel and the badger are the uh, or or whatever that creature is. is it, was it a weasel? It's, I don't a, remember, it's, a, but it's anyway. a badger. I don't remember what the other thing is. Yeah, but they're they're played by the voices of the 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 lawyers. Right, right. Which I, which I didn't catch, but but yes, um, yeah, that sequence is, you know, the. The way movies are made these days, where so much of it is animation anyway, like, um, but it like just seamlessly blends in. Like you don't even like think about like how all of this is on a green screen and it's all drawn and all that sort of stuff. So like, like it just because it's it's meant to be invisible almost, you know, like you're meant to just fall into it. But this one, because they did it in the 2D style, like you couldn't avoid the fact of realizing like this is drawn, but it felt so real in the same ways that like a marvel movie feels real you know what i mean like mm-hmm. like it, it was uh i don't know if the degree of difficulty is higher or lower for something like that where it's you know not where it's like very visible instead of invisible but man it was i, I was really impressed by this action sequence like I was, <laughs> and yeah I, I really enjoyed it and uh yeah you mentioned back to the future earlier this one got that that action sequence had a real uh, back to the future three vibe to me yeah i could see that <laughs> <laughs> with, the, with the the steam powered engine and stuff so i could see <laughs> that good. yeah but i i like the idea too of like in that whole sequence so you know where they're on the uh you know they're on the bowl and so you know they you know they're they're going sideways and stuff around the bowl i i, I just i thought i thought this was a really nice part of the movie so you go from that very very loud sequence to the the kind of heartstrings number the place where lost things go Mm-hmm. which seems like it's going to be about, I'm about to cry. It seems like it's, a, it's going to be about them breaking the bowl. It ends up being about the fact that their mother is still watching them from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Another, just, you know, a song song in such a way as to, to purposely make you cry. <laughs> right. When it, it, it kind of sneaks up on you. Um, at least it snuck up on me. I wasn't expecting it to suddenly be about their mother, even though obviously it was going to be about their mother. Um, yeah. and, and that's what the whole thing is actually about. But um, I, I was very moved by that song. And I suppose this is the version of go to sleep or don't, don't, what's the name of that song? Is it stay yeah, awake? Don't go to sleep. Stay, stay awake. awake. Yeah, that's right. This is a better song yeah. than stay awake. If, if indeed that's the, uh, that's the parallel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess this one is either stay awake or feed the birds or both. There isn't really a feed the birds moment in this movie. No, there's as not. Much as what would what would Walt Disney think? 
<laughs> as much as it's beat for beat, like they're you know, I guess it's that bird on the on the tower at the end that flies in the Lin Manuel Miranda's face. That's, that's they do beat. they do mention the feed the birds moment from the beginning though, right? Like uh, from the first movie um, when because um, that's that's where they got the their savings from. It's the money that yes yeah he did instead of giving tuppence to the bird lady. Yes yeah. So yeah, Place Where Lost Things Go is a good song. Good song. Then we get uh, Turning Turtle. I texted you while I was watching this and said that the movie comes to a total standstill during the Meryl Streep segment. And uh, I'm interested to know. You hadn't seen it when I said that. I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't unduly prejudice you. No, you didn't. Um, It's like uh, this movie is long. As as the first as the first one was, you know, and in the first one we talked about the uh, the laughing song or when they go visit. I love to laugh. Love to laugh. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, it's appropriate. (laughs) That's all I thought. You know, I was like, oh, yeah, it's it's appropriate that it's in that place. Um, Yeah. Apparently in the books, every book, they go meet some new relative of Mary Poppins's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it is it is at least faithful to the the source material in that sense. Yeah. I feel like the it didn't have as much of a payoff as the first one did cuz um you know in the first one that's where where they learned the joke uh, about the wooden wooden uh man with the wooden leg named Smith, you know. Uh and and they go floating up to the ceiling when they're laughing, which is of course what happens to Mr. Dawes Sr. You know, that's how he dies laughing and he floats up to the ceiling. Um, so I, yeah, I felt like there was more payoff on the first one. So you're saying this one draws to a standstill. Like I thought the sequence was fine. Again, I like the dancing and stuff. Um, I really like the, the jazzy music of turning turtle. I, re- I really liked that. The um, song was better than the stuff around it. It's kind of the opposite of the, the last, the, um, uh, it covers not the book. Yeah. The stuff around it, though, is, uh, yeah, it, there was just no payoff for it. This was definitely the part of the movie I would have excised. You could have yeah. you could have brought the movie down to two hours, maybe even lower, by getting rid of it. And I know everybody loves Meryl Streep or whatever. Yeah, and I, I, that's not, that doesn't play into it for me. Like, I know she's Hollywood royalty, but that's, like, all that I know is that she's Hollywood royalty. I don't know right. why she is. I don't know. I don't feel those things, so. <clears throat> anyway, then we move on to the uh, step in time number, which is Triple Little Light Fantastic. Which, which is did, no Chim Chimery slash step in time, but it's still pretty good. It's pretty good. I didn't know that Triple Little Light Fantastic was like a an idiom. Did you know yeah, that? Yeah, <laughs> I did. I did. But the only reason I know it is because my mother used to have this cassette tape from Paul McCartney. He had a live album called trip the live fantastic and i remember uh, that having to be explained to me although i think for a long time i thought trip the light fantastic meant get high which if yeah. you think about it um makes a lot more sense trip the light fantastic <laughs> sure seems like it means get high as opposed to dance but no it means dance i did know that yeah well it's and it's an old one like it goes i think they uh what i was reading was like uh john milton or something was the one who, who first used it does that sound right to you? I, I didn't. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it. I just. I just looked it up. It does say that it goes all the way back to Milton. Crazy. Yeah. So. So yeah. Anyway. 
So yeah, a this nice is sequence. this is going to be a hard sequence, right? Because um, Chim Chimari Step in Time is so iconic, and it's it's one of the most amazing dance sequences in any movie ever. Yep. And and how are you possibly going to live up to that? Um, mm-hmm. And all I can say is this doesn't embarrass the people doing it. It's not bad. It's not that. <laughs> yeah. But it was never going to be that. And they had to do something like that. I get that. But it was always going to suffer in comparison to Step in Time. Right. And I think in a way that um, can you imagine that doesn't suffer compared to Spoonful of Sugar? Because Spoonful of Sugar is also completely iconic and wonderful. But like um, Spoonful of Sugar is all in the nursery. It's all practical effects. It's very fun and cool, you know, like with the, you know, the toys putting themselves away and the the clothes folding and all that stuff. But they went so far away from that. And can you imagine that? That you could be forgiven for even like, you know, not even putting those two songs together in your head. Whereas Triple Little Life, Fantastic and Chim Chim, you know, Step in Time, Chim Chim Marie are like, you know, both late, dark London, you know, uh, yeah, definitely they were, they were they were towing the line, you know, on that one. So. Right. Right. And one well, and, and step in time in particular is just so overwhelming. It's such a, a huge, you feel like you need a cigarette after you watch it. And, <laughs> and they're, they're trying to do something similar here with triple, triple little like fantastic. And it's, ju- it's just not as overwhelming. Yeah. At least to me, again, maybe if I'd seen it for the first time as a kid, the way I saw the original, I would feel differently. Yeah, maybe that's hard to say. That's always going to be hard for us to say. So, your kids weren't impressed, though, or were they? <laughs> my uh, my six year old said, uh, "I didn't mind it," and I said, "You didn't mind it? Does that mean you you liked it or you didn't like it?" And she said, "Well, if I didn't like it, then I wouldn't say I didn't mind it." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it's one step above didn't like, I guess. Did you like the stuff with the uh, Cockney rhyming slang? Uh, yeah, it was fine. I'm, I I didn't know how to feel about it because I think the I don't I um I I know that like Cockney rhyming slang works something like that you know like what they were doing, um, but obviously it felt a little weird because it was like their own thing and not the Cockney rhyming slang. You know what I mean? Right. The the thing with Mary Poppins translating for them, there's no way that is how Cockney rhyming slang works. I think it's like standard phrases they use. It's not just like taking one sentence and turning it into another sentence. Right. Yeah. That's what that's the that's the impression I had too in my head. But I don't I don't know enough about it. So I don't either. I shouldn't I shouldn't say that as if I as if I'm some sort of expert on rhyming slang. Yeah. It was fine though. It was, it was fun that they were bringing in that aspect of British culture, which is, after all, famous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was fun. It was a fun sequence. It was fun, too. Like, you know, they've got uh, Lin-Manuel on a bike from the very beginning. And so then they've got all the, uh, you know, the bike tricks and stuff in there. Um, you know, these, you know, these other Learys can all, you know, do amazing 
things on bikes and stuff. It was, it was, it was, it was a fun sequence. You're right. Like, there's just no, it's no fair. I mean, it's just that's the that's the pro that's the flaw. The big flaw with the whole movie is that it's just not fair. It, it, yeah. How it, how are you ever going to live up to something like that? It's yeah. it's it's Emily Blunt's problem, but it's every it's the problem with everything in this movie. Everything in the original Mary Poppins or almost everything is iconic. Yeah. And and so like how do you how do you stand up to it? Yeah. And Why I guess, make the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's. I think that's a, the. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like we run into this conversation like every single uh, episode, so maybe we don't want to go down that path. But um, like, uh, you know, Karen uh, Dotris, Dotrice, whatever her name is, the, she, the original Jane. You know, she talked about like our movie's not going to last forever. You know, like yes, it's lasted these sixty years or whatever, but like it's going to look more and more and more outdated. And so an updated version for the next generation is a good thing, you know? And like, so I, I understand that line of argument, but then it gets back into that whole, like, I don't know. Um, if you're going to make something uh, that is meant to be a classic for 60 years, why build it on top of something else instead of just doing something new, you know? Right. Well, because Disney doesn't really take chances anymore, right? I mean, that's the that's the thing we've been talking about for the last year and a half on this podcast is right. that we, we've reached an era where Disney, they're willing to buy stuff, but they're not willing to take a lot of aesthetic risks. Yeah, so... And I, I feel like in some ways we've we've beat that horse to death. So yeah, I don't I don't I don't have anything to add to yeah. beyond that. But I don't I don't know. But I, yeah, it is interesting to think about. You know, like because it is completely possible that for some kid, you know, they will see this movie and their parents will never have shown them the first one and have no desire to show them the first one because either they don't think their kid will like it or you know it's too slow or whatever. You know, and like there's a part of me that just like. Um, I don't know. Like, what what are we even talking about here? You know, like it's it's just entertainment in a lot of ways. You know, like who cares? Like, why get up in arms about it? You know, but in another way, like I I don't know. Like, was I mean, uh, like was the original Mary Poppins art? You know, like and does it even matter? Like all that stuff. Like I don't know. I get right, I get, right. That's where but, I get but, stuck in my own head a lot. It's also but, true though that like whatever movie you see when you're a kid, you love forever. I have a coworker who loves the movie The Polar Express. Mm-hmm. Now I know that you and I are of such an age where The Polar Express came out when we were in college, which means there's absolutely no way you like The Polar Express, right? It's a <laughs> terrible movie. It looks like hell. It's creepy. It's cynical. It's not a good movie. But you see that movie when you're six years old, especially if you see it at Christmas mm-hmm. two years in a row. And all of a sudden, you know, they feel my coworker feels about that movie the way you and I might feel about Mary Poppins or the Jungle Book or whatever. Right. And so it might be that our our kind of general exhaustion at the end of this project has just been the fact that we didn't see these movies when we were little. Maybe. Although the fact that your kids aren't in love with Mary Poppins Returns makes me think that maybe that's not entirely a true reading. Yeah. And I think it, 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 there there is that aspect. I think what. The the difference between what you're talking about there, like, okay, you know, this movie came out when you're six years old, so you love it. Um, you mentioned this 
same argument in the original Mary Poppins episode, but you were talking about like, you know, there's people who love um, uh, Herbie Lovebug or whatever that movie is, you know? It's true, or yeah. There's people who love, you know, the Shaggy Dog or, or the... Uh, the other live the, action Disney pictures. Yeah, the, uh, the Cat from Outer Space or whatever, you know, which are obviously not classics and they just don't hold up in the same way whatsoever as the way that Mary Poppins has, you know? And so like... What happened there? Like, what's the, what, what is the, I do think there's something interesting to say, and I just can't say it because I don't have the, what, the critical ability or something, you know, but like, there's something that like, you know, um, I just have to keep borrowing that language of like mass cult and mid cult and all that, you know, and, and high culture and low culture and whatever, but like, there's something there where like, this is actually something that's like really beautiful, you know, like, and we talked about in the beginning of this movie, like that this or the beginning of this podcast, that this is a beautiful movie. But like when I'm using beautiful now, like there's, there's something about the original Mary Poppins that is just incredibly beautiful in a, in a multifaceted way. Right. This movie is beautiful to look at and to listen to, but it's, it, for me, at least it didn't do that whole thing. And I wonder if, part of the reason why it doesn't do the whole thing is because it's right next to the original Mary Poppins, you know, whereas if it had just been a, uh, you know, a lovely story, um, but wasn't trying to do beat for beat and wasn't trying to do the same music and all that stuff, like, could it be something that, that could stand on its own? And we'll never know because like you said, Disney isn't taking those risks, you know, um, they're leaving it to other studios to make, the ultimate classic film but it is hard to say like you know in 60 years like what from 2022 or 2023 or 2021 or whatever like what of any of these movies are going to last for 60 you're years? right though that quality does tend to win out over time i mean it, it's it's true that people don't watch herbie the love bug anymore even yeah. though even though the same people probably love that movie as loved mary poppins in 1964 yeah so but yeah. Hmm. And yeah, anyway, I feel like it's appropriate to say something on a podcast like this because like, this is what we do, you know, as we critique these movies, but, oh, of course. I, also, but I also feel like it's, it, it's, it's like, I can't reach the, the height that I wish I could as a critic. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, triple little light. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Then there's a couple of reprises, and the other, the only other song is "Nowhere to Go But Up," which is obviously the "Let's Go Fly a Kite" um, of this movie. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, I don't think it's as good as "Let's Go Fly a Kite," but it's a nice sequence, and it's fun to see Angela Lansbury, even if her voice is not what it once was. Yes, it's a beautiful sequence. I actually, uh, this is, uh, I, I'm trying not to be too hard on this movie because I did enjoy it. This is another criticism I have, though, <laughs> is during that sequence that um, Colin Firth's character. Yes, I was just going to bring this up, Josh. Okay, good. I'm glad that the, we're on. The, his balloon doesn't work. Yeah. Whereas in the original, they all go, they all end up flying a kite, you know? Like, that's, you know, the whole, everybody changes, you know? But right. This one, but, his, but it's denied to this guy. Yeah, that's denied to this guy. The original movie doesn't have a villain in the way that this movie has a villain. It's true. I mean, he is definitely villainous in a way that Mr. Dawes Sr. was not intending to be villainous. I mean, Mr. Dawes Sr. is... (laughs) 
Mr. Claus Sr. is is wonderful because he's played by Dick Van Dyke. And he's hilarious because he's, you know, talking about like, you know, if the banks of England fall, the whole, you know, everything falls while he's like doing pratfalls, you know, <laughs> so it's like just all just like glorious and wonderful. But also for Michael and for like little kids watching the movie, he's also like creepy and scary because he's trying to take Michael's money, you know, but he's not a villain. He's just like, you know, really into banking. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas um, Colin Firth, uh, he's a he's a mustache twirler, right? Like, what yeah. what is his motivation for being so evil? Yeah, what is he? Kid. Why does he want to take their house just to take it? He says he's foreclosed on eighteen others. Yeah, he's ex- excited about it. it. It just seems like you know maybe this guy whose family has been important to the history of this bank, who works for this bank. Uh, who who your relatives clearly have some affection for. Maybe you don't have to cheat your way into taking his house from him. Like, it, it's not just that he's not cutting him slack. He's falsifying stuff. He threw the records into the fire. Yeah. Which seems like it would be a pretty serious crime, actually. <laughs> yeah, actually. Hmm. So put him, in, put him in jail or let his balloon fly. Let it change his life, you know? <laughs> yeah. Let yeah, him let be. It. Let him be skeptical that it's going to work. He says, "I'll give it a go." Right? Yeah. Let him. Let him be skeptical that it's going to work, and then let it work, and let it surprise him, and let it change him. That would, I, I think, would have been a more satisfying thing to do with him if you're going to bring him in at all. Yeah. Yep. One hundred percent agree. But maybe if they'd done that, I would be complaining that it was overly sentimental. It wouldn't let the villain be a villain. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Gotta complain about something. I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if the grown-ups really will all forget by tomorrow that they all flew into the air on balloons. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jack won't, because he promises not to. <clears throat> I do think that's an interesting idea, though, because it kind of puts the... Uh, uh, it really puts the um, onus, I guess, on the audience of adults, not of kids. But if you're an adult watching this movie, you can't just say, well, that's never happened to me because the adults always forget. You have right. to say, like, it forces you to say, what am I forgetting? Yeah, like how many remarkable things have you seen today, Josh, that... I mean, maybe you've flown around on a balloon today. I just don't remember it. Yeah, it's not impossible. It's not impossible. (laughs) It's bleak. (laughs) I didn't mean it to be bleak, though. I think it's like I, I meant it more as like a way of like, you know, when Jesus tells a parable, like he's telling it to the audience, like you're supposed to do something with it, you know? Like, I don't know if this movie is a parable or not, but I feel like if it's if it's attempting to be a parable that action at least of like well the adults always forget is like the part that as an adult you you're you should leave and be like well i'm not going to forget i'm going to i'm going to open my eyes to the wonder around me or i'm going to look back at my childhood i'm not going to forget what it's like to be a child you know I, right if there's a message in this movie and that's the message then i think that's actually a strong a strong point in the movie's favor that they put that in there that the adults always forget. 
But maybe mm. I'm reaching. <laughs> no, I don't think you're reaching. <laughs> so, I mean, what's your ultimate what's your ultimate verdict on this movie? That it's it's perfectly enjoyable, but also it leaves you kind of hollow at the end. Yeah, I didn't mind it. <laughs> you didn't mind it. No, I think it's better than that. I think it's, um, <clears throat> you know, our, one of our other favorite things about this show, you know, pull out your bingo cards, is, uh, you know, how constraints can create great art. And I do feel like they had they put themselves with some crazy constraints on this movie by deciding to make a sequel to Mary Poppins, you know? And I don't know that it ended up in great art, um, but I can't, I don't want to be cynical and fault them for trying, you know? No, no, no. And it was, it's good, right? Like it's a B movie. It's, 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 it, especially if you like the first one, it's a perfectly enjoyable experience. It's just not as good as the first one. Yeah. 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 It's, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say. I really, I, there are, there's a lot to recommend this movie. It's 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 too bad it's in the Mary Poppins universe because yeah it's just but I mean it wouldn't be a movie with if it wasn't in the Mary Poppins universe they should so have like made it a sequel to Bedknobs and Broomsticks instead that's a movie yeah, that people don't have go. such positive feelings about there you go that's they could have done all the same songs and yes, everybody would have been like oh it's so much better than the original yes it, the, where are know? all the Nazis they could have said it during uh, Desert Storm <laughs> instead of <laughs> instead of uh, World War Two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i actually don't really remember the plot of but um, i know there's nazis they they like don't they like try to live in their house or something i really don't remember at all i mean i go watch it i have it on dvd yeah anyway it's it's a good movie it's a good movie it's i mean the it's <clears throat> i i guess it's all I can say about it, though. It's a good movie. It's a little less than the sum of its parts. I yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Because I think if you just talk about how much is good in this movie, you would think I love the movie. But then, like, just overall, it just is kind of like, okay. But, like, the the orchestration, I feel like, is perfect. I don't know if they, like, listen to the original or they just listen to a lot of, like, 60s orchestration or what. Um, if they decided to use, like, only the same instruments or, make, you know, like, what. But, like, it's it's perfect. Like, yeah, it, it, is. it just evokes the original perfectly. Like, all, like, I... I can't you know yeah like a million thumbs up to the orchestration on it um and we already talked about the sets are gorgeous the the you know the costume design is gorgeous the uh we didn't even talk about this during the animation sequence the um you know the the costume designer was like i felt like in the first one their the costumes that people were wearing really like stood out against the animation so they designed like animated costumes for them but they're actual costumes but like they're you know, like the, it looks like they're wearing a drawing, <laughs> you know? Um, did you notice that? Um, yes. Yeah. And the, co like, the costuming in general, I thought was really, really good. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing, you know? And they then, updated like, Mary really well. It yeah. looks, she looks like she dresses the same, but also she looks like she would dress 30, 25 years later. Yeah. Yeah. And the, be the people are beautiful and the performances are beautiful. It's, it's good. It, it made me cry a lot. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I mean, Ralph breaks the internet made me cry. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, that reaction doesn't mean anything to me anymore. It's a low bar on this show, I know. <clears throat> I will say I'm even more smitten with Dick Van Dyke now than I was after the original. Like, really? I think in the original he was like a little overshadowed, maybe by. Uh, julie andrews because who couldn't be overshadowed by julie andrews but in this one like he just he stole the movie for me if i he is if if this movie was a b it's a b plus because he's in it like i mean it's a whole great hire like he, it's he, a nine he's like 95 in this movie too yeah, he's 90 i think he was 91 when they filmed Crazy. it and he does i mean that's all real like he's dancing around at 91 like amazing that's crazy. Uh, so amazing so amazing I've decided 2023 is the year of Dick Van Dyke in this house. We're going to watch all of his stuff. You're going to kill him. You know that's what's going to happen. He's going to die. <laughs> you're going to so you're going to watch are you going to watch like all the Dick Van Dyke TV show? I don't know if I can get a hold of it maybe. I'm I was mostly just thinking his movie. I think it's on Peacock. Okay. I was going to start with the movies. I got to start small. I can't. I, I I don't actually have that much time to devote to media and to, to watching all of Dick Van Dyke's performances. I just can't even name another Dick Van Dyke movie besides um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which yeah. I've never seen. Yeah, I've never seen it either. So I'm going to see it this year. You're going to do it. That's my plan. That's my resolution. My New Year's resolution is watch more Dick Van Dyke. Oh, I've seen some of these movies. He does actually have all that many movies. Yeah, it's not a huge number. I looked it up on Wikipedia before I, before I made my resolution. <laughs> he's in Bowling for Columbine. Oh, yeah, yeah. For some reason. Oh, he's in the Night at the Museum movies. I forgot that. Mm-hmm. I like those movies less than those people. I haven't seen them. So. The second one was pretty good because Amy Adams plays um, Amelia Earhart. And she's she's just terrific, and I, it, like it brings the whole movie up a whole like ten points. Hmm. Anyway, uh, enjoy your year of Dick Van Dyke. Oh, I will. How could oh, you know the, the movie yeah, version of Bye Bye Birdie? I didn't know that. He's amazing. <clears throat> if I live to be ninety-one, may I be as cool as Dick Van Dyke when I do? You better start dancing now, while you can still learn. I guess so. Yeah. I actually told my wife that I was like, oh, man, I hope I'm as cool as Dick Van Dyke at 91. But I'm like, but the, uh, I'm not as cool as Dick Van Dyke at 41. So <laughs> like a 41 year old Dick Van Dyke is way cooler than a 41 year old me. So it's maybe how old was he in Mary Poppins? He must have been close to 40. Yeah, but he's so cool in Mary Poppins. I know, well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> he actually had two long-running TV shows because he was also in Diagnosis Murder. Um, so, like, I'm looking it up. There's 158 episodes of the Dick Van Dyke Show and 178 episodes of Diagnosis Murder. Wow, that's a that's a lot of uh, a lot of TV. Diagnosis yeah. Murder. He's like a um, uh, what do you call a medical examiner? I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'll get into all that in 2023. <laughs> Maybe that'll be 2024. That'll be when I'm 91 and I have the time. Oh, look now, look, look when you hear this, you're gonna you're gonna say, forget everything else. I'm just gonna do diagnosis murder. He stars as Dr. Mark Sloan, a medical doctor who solves crimes with the help of his son Steve, a homicide detective played by Van Dyke's real life son Barry. <laughs> I gotta say, I mean, you're just gonna have to watch that. (laughs) 
Oh, there's also the new Dick Van Dyke show, 72 episodes. <laughs> anyway, we better end so you can get started. <laughs> I guess so. Good grief. Good grief, good grief. What are we talking about next next month? Is it uh, Riot and the Last Dragon? Oh my goodness, yes. We are on number 59 next month, Riot and the Last Dragon. Then we get uh, number 60, uh, Encanto. And then number 61, Strange World. And then it's the end. We'll have some sort of wrap-up, maybe even two episodes of wrap-up. We'll have to like write down what sorts of categories we want to talk about. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been thinking of some. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but then when I think of them, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. It's too hard. Like the one I thought to, of today is like, who's the, 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 the biggest? Like we've, we've called several people throughout these episodes national treasures like who do you give like the ultimate national treasure award oh no i I think we have to answer that question oh yeah but it's so hard dick van dyke (laughs) well yeah but i mean you just saw the movie so (laughs) i feel like i feel like you're not viewing it entirely objectively (laughs) anyway i'm not playing my hand too early but that's that's the kind of categories i'm thinking of okay well Michael, thanks for joining me on this adventure. Oh, um, thank you, as always. <laughs> Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. We're on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and christianhumanist.org. You can help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com. And we want to encourage you to set your podcast players' dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for spending the time with us. So for Michael Farmer, I'm Joshua Altmanchover. Goodbye, old friend.